Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Discussions surrounding the church, its purpose, its function, its, and its importance have been sources of discussion and contention for almost 20 millennia. For some of us, we have casually glided into position, almost unaware of the part church has played in our lives, and yet we can hardly imagine life without it. For others, it has been the source of untold grief or extreme joy. And probably for most of us, it's been a combination of the two. Sometimes the church has been positioned as if it can commit no wrong. Other times, it is accused as if it can do nothing right. Sometimes it rises to heights of glory and other times to the depths of shame and disgrace. Sometimes you can hardly live with it, and then you realize you can't live without it. A couple of questions for you to ponder when we have these feelings, and I think what I've expressed to you this morning is, uh, has a lot to do with feeling, how we feel about something. Um, when we have these feelings, whether they're good or whether they're bad, is to cause us or is the church the reason? And if the church deserves some of the blame or the credit, whichever way it is, what makes the church this way? And do we have any part to play in what a church becomes? Now, if you ponder Jesus' purpose for the church um, from Ephesians chapter 5, he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might, present, he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So we, we're hearing him say here that Jesus loves the church and wants the church to love him. Jesus has sacrificed his life for the church. Jesus plans the church to be a beautiful bride for him. And um, we know also from other passages that he wants those from every nation to be a part of that bride. And don't you think that if Jesus has invested this much in the church and he cares as deeply about the church that we should also care for the church as well? Especially since you and I are part of that church that will someday be his bride and especially since he loved you enough to die for you while you were still unlovely and hateful. And by the way, can I have a, a, a young person, some, someone younger than 12 that's really brave that would like to come up here and, and look at this book with me? It'll only take a minute. The book says, Why Jesus Died. Can I have somebody that's, that's brave that will come up here for just a minute? It'll only take you about... 
two seconds to read the book. Okay, here comes one. All right. This book is about why Jesus died. I would like you to open the book and tell us what it says. What do you see? Mirror. Huh? Mirror. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Myself. Okay. That's why Jesus, you can go back. That's why Jesus died. You see yourself? Brother Raymond gave that to me. He was, I just, I thought that was cute. But you know, that's, that's, that's true, isn't it? That's why Jesus died. He died for me. He died for you. It was a personal thing. Because he wants you to be a part of his bride. You see, a church is made up of individuals. It's made up of you and of me. And you and you and you. And, and the church can rise no farther than the people that are in it. See, that's why we have such a, a, such a mess in our government. Because the government is made up of people. And guess what? Guess the people who are in the government. The people who live all around us. And when you have, when you have people all around you that, that don't have fathers in their home and, 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 and haven't experienced love and, and, and are all messed up in emotional ways, what do you expect when you have a government? The same thing is true in church. You know, what, the church will rise no farther than, than the people who are in it, and that's you and me. So where are we? So what did Jesus intend for the church to be, and what does it look like, and how does that compare with you, or with your church, or with your conference if you have one, and most of us here do. The title of my sermon this morning is A Church for God's Glory. Now, this sermon was inspired by uh, three sermons um, by Brother Philip Martin and Richard Herr. And I know that most of you did not get to hear those, and I'm not in any way telling you that this is those sermons because it most definitely is not. Um, so they are not to be blamed for everything I say today as each person puts his own particular spin on things and comes to their own conclusions. And um, I would like to... Uh, I would like to start by, by now reading from 2 Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. Now, I would like to think of, us, think of this passage as, um, or at least the first part, of living in light of the coming of Christ. Now, for a church to function, each of us needs to function. And, um, and Paul says, I'm stirring up your minds. Jesus is coming back. I'm stirring up your minds. I want you to think. I want you to be thinking about what that means and how that affects your life. And um, Jesus is coming. And, and with Jesus coming is also... Judgment. The uh, the next verses he's talking about he's talking about how that uh, that when Jesus comes he will come to judge. And uh, so let's keep reading. That you might be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us the 
apostles of the Lord and Savior. Thank you. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers and walk, walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that the word of, by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. So, so people are going to say, you know, where's Jesus coming? You've been saying this for 2,000 years and he hasn't showed up yet. Sort of what they say, isn't it? And uh, it says they're ignorant of they're ignorant of this fact that that um, that one day, a long time ago, when God was ready to bring judgment, He brought judgment. It happened just like that. They weren't ready. Oh, there was plenty of warnings, but um, but uh, it, it it just happened. It, it happened quickly. And um, they were all doing the normal stuff, he said, until the day that Noah entered the ark. They were still getting married, and they, were, they thought everything was going to keep going just like it had always happened. But it didn't. And the heavens and earth, verse 7, which are now, are by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. And so he's, he's giving us fair warning. He says that someday the Lord Jesus will come back. And um, he's going to come like a thief. Now, I don't, uh, this is not a prophecy session, and so I'm not going to go there, and I'm just going to just sort of leave it a little open-ended. Is this, is he going to come as a thief to, to us, or is he going to come as a thief? thief only to the ungodly. I'll let you go dig for that some other time. But the fact is, is that he's, he's reminding us that God, that Jesus has not come back yet because Jesus is, is waiting for more people to come. He's being long-suffering. He's not, uh, he's, he's waiting for people to repent. And so he tells us, tells us what the, our response should be to the fact that he's coming again. Verse 11, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? That is, we are to, be, we are to live a life of holiness. And uh, verse 12, looking and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. What, what kind of people should we be? We should be holy people. We should be people that anticipate 
and eagerly await his coming. That's what those words mean. We should anticipate and eagerly await his coming. We should be looking for um, the same word as the word for anticipation. We should be looking for the new heaven and the new earth. Verse 13, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And as we talked about in Sunday school this morning, you know it's a little hard to anticipate something when it's having it so good down here sometimes, isn't it? You know, if everything is running smooth and everything is okay and, and you know, the lazy boy feels fine and your back don't hurt and you got plenty of food to eat and your wife still loves you and, and all this stuff, then, then, you know, it's a little hard to anticipate heaven, isn't it? But when God lets some of these things happen in our lives that causes us grief and, and, um, and frustration and pain, and all of a sudden, heaven starts to shine a little more, doesn't it? We start to think about it. And he says we should live that way. That's the way we should think. Wherefore, beloved, verse 14 Seeing that you look for such things, he's assuming we are looking for it, we're thinking about it, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Diligent, we are to be diligent. Remember, we are part of the what? The bride of Christ. Have you ever seen a bride who was not diligent about how she presented herself on her wedding day. Just about doesn't happen, does it? Very important to a bride. Very important. And it should be important to us too, shouldn't it? An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, has written unto you. And, uh, and I wonder, what does that mean? As, and looking, looking around, studying a little bit, I, I, I think what he's saying is that, is that God in, in, um, in being long-suffering is telling us something. He's saying, look, I want everybody to be saved. I want everybody to be saved. And, and remember what the call of the church is supposed to be. What are we supposed to do? What is, what is the last words that Jesus told us before he left? And I think that gives us an indication of what our, our goal should be, the things that, that um, should be important to us as a church. God desires all to be saved. I think that means we should be doing something about it. I think we'll stop at verse 15 for now. I would like to, to ask you, where are you? Where is your church? Where is your conference? Now, I'd like to share some things here, um, and, and I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm borrowing for, from notes that, uh, that Richard Herr shared with us at conference. I know most of you weren't there, 
And um, if, by the way, you want to listen to that, that's up to you. It is on podcast um, at Pike's website, and I can always email you his notes or, or the, uh, the outlines that he gave us all if you'd like them. So feel free to ask for that. Um, but what I would like to share with you this morning is, is, is something that impacted me as I pondered it, the, asking the question, where are we? Where am I? Where is my church? Where is my conference? In light of the things that we discussed already. Um, you, you will notice I have something up here. And, uh, and this was an outline he gave us. And he said, this is, a, this is a table. At the head of the table is the CEO. The CEO sort of is, is, is the one who sort of has the last word on things. And, and uh, depending on you, what you have as a CEO is going to make a difference on your thinking. Your thinking makes a difference on your values. Your values is going to affect your choices. And the things that you choose are going to affect your destiny. Now that's very true in a very spiritual way. It's also true as relates to the church. How we think, how we think will affect our values. Our values are going to affect our choices. Our choices are going to affect where we end up as a church, as a congregation, as a conference. The, uh, the first CEO he gave us is it's truth. And um, now, if the first we're talking about a passionate church, if we have a, a church that is passionate, and um, that's the kind of church we want to have. I think we do. But the question is, who's going to be at the head of the table? And um, as he shared with us, he, he, he said, if, if you want a passionate church, truth needs to be at the head of the table. Which results in a vibrant prayer life, an emphasis on doctrine, again coming back to truth, a love for God that separates us from the world, a love for our enemies that allows us to suffer, a sharing love that, that shares uh, with the lost, biblical convictions, obedience, and abhorrence, abhorrence of sin. Now I'd like to turn just briefly to, uh, to Revelation chapter, um, Revelation chapter, lost my spot here, Revelation chapter 3. There's a church there that uh, we want to read about. In uh, verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David, he that openeth and no man shutteth, and shutteth and no man openeth. Who is that, by the way? It's Jesus, isn't it? I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I make them come and worship before thy feet, and to know that I have loved thee, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. I will also keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell on the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast that thou hast, that no man take thy crown. He says, I know your works. I know your works. You see, a passionate church is alive and bears fruit. Now, you cannot put fruit on a tree. What do they call the fruit that you put on a tree? It's called artificial, isn't it? Nobody wants to eat it. It's not usually isn't all that pretty. I did have a piece of artificial fruit that I passed around one time, and it still has teeth marks on it. But they never got very far because it was artificial. It didn't taste good. And um, artificial fruit's not the kind of fruit you want on the tree. It might look nice, but it, it, that's, that's where the value ends. Fruit needs to grow naturally. Yet, yet when, a when a tree is alive and it's, uh, it does bear fruit, and um, it should bear fruit, there needs to be passion. There needs to be passion that stirs to action. And, and they were commended because they kept his word, they, because they per persevered in difficulty. And... Um, I found it interesting. They will be kept from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole earth. It made me wonder, will the lukewarm stay behind in the rapture? I'm talking about, when I say lukewarm, I'm talking about those who've confessed Christ and... Um, they are Christians, and um, at least they think they are. Is it possible that they'll stay behind and get um, and go through the mill a while before God will let them make up their mind for sure who they're going to serve? I'm not sure. I just uh, just something I was pondering. Well, God only the, take the ones that are. Are um, are passionate? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure how that's going to work. But we are told. He says, "Hold fast, that no one takes your crown." Now, I would like to talk a little bit about passionate Christianity in in the history of the Mennonite Church. Now, as I understood it, as as he shared. Between 1900 and 1935, there was a tremendous revival in the Mennonite churches. Prior to that, they, there really was nothing to, can I say, brag on. Um, but, you know, it was during that time there was, there was these great revival meetings. They would sometimes last for six weeks at a time. 6,000 people would show up sometimes. And, and uh, it, was, it was a time of tremendous revival. And, um, you know, out of that revival then, uh, you know, that generation, I guess, was sort of going past and the next generation was coming. And, and out of the, out of the uh, 
out of the passion of the first 30 years, the next 30 years were, were times of, of tremendous activity, of, of mission work. The Virginia Mennonite Conference, I understand, had 21 congregations in West Virginia and a total of about 51 mission churches. The Indiana Mission, uh, Michigan Mission Board uh, reached from Michigan to Kentucky, about 500 members, largely of non-Mennonite background. Lancaster and Franconia boards had missions in New York, New England, Alabama, and Georgia, over 200 rural missions with over 3,000 members, a time of tremendous mission activity. But somewhere in the process, things began to change, and by, and by the 60s and 70s, things were, were changing. By the 70s, there was lots of church splits, and, and you know, the, the, the liberals and the conservatives, as we tend to call them. And um, it makes me wonder what happened. What happened? And the more, I, the more I listen to some of that history, the more I think that, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just quite as simple as we think it was. It wasn't just these were the bad guys and these were the good guys. I don't think it was that simple. What are some other phases of church life? You see, um, there, there's the passionate... Um, phase of church life. There's another one called the maintenance one. Maintenance. Just just holding things together, just trying to trying to get by. Some of the signs that uh, that go along with the maintenance one is that uh, there's more emphasis on practice than on principle. More emphasis on the outer than there is the inner. The standards are the main topic of discussion at ministers' meetings. There's no particular goals for spiritual growth, except it, as it possibly relates to, to performance of some kind. You know, I don't think when we get to the maintenance stage that the leaders know that they're there. I really don't think so. I think they think they're up here. I think they think they're being passionate for truth. On a personal level, what does the maintenance stage look like, or what could it look like? I'm going to say that, uh, well, see, by the way, one of the things I forgot to mention is that, uh, is that truth isn't up here anymore. Um, and... Um, what goes up here is, uh, what sits at the head of the table is church standards. Now just so you know, I didn't make this up. Somebody else made this up, okay? Not saying he had it all together, or he's all right. But um, I'm, I'm giving it to you for your... For your um, to challenge your thinking, to, to help you think, because, you know, the fact is, we as a church are, we're somewhere. And um, most of us don't remember back to 1900. 
I don't think any of us do. Um, we'd have to be pretty old to get back that far, wouldn't we? And you know, there's a lot of things that happened back then, and history was always written. History is always, the history you read is always affected by how the person who writes it perceives it. God didn't write the Mennonite history book. So, you know, we may not know exactly how he sees it. So how does it, how would maintenance look um, like from a, on a personal level? Maybe, uh, I'm just going to throw a suggestion out here. Maybe it's when our main criteria for, for uh, choosing a church has to do with whether we like the standards or not. Instead of looking at the passion, the vision, and the biblical teaching and preaching and the love for Jesus. Well, there's, um, there's also the, um, we get past maintenance, we come to the, the, uh, the tolerance. And um, what, seats at the, what sits at the head of the table at that point is, um, is relationships. When I grow up, I'll learn how to write so you can read it. Um, you know, tolerance, tolerance, uh, I think probably he was thinking tolerance of sin, where sin is tolerated, and, um, and maybe um, how we relate to sin has, to, has a lot to do with with, um, you know, how it affects my family. You know, where, where um, you know, if it, um, yeah, if I've got somebody in my family doing it, you know, I don't look at it quite as severely as if somebody in your family is doing it type thing. Where we're not, um, not committed to obeying God regardless of the personal cost where it makes a difference of who's doing it. There's another type of tolerance, though, that I think that can affect us. And it's the tolerance of the church. You see, when, when we're passionate about Jesus and passionate about the church, then we have a love for the church. When, when we come to a place where we, we are, aren't trusting of what, what the church is doing and where it's going. And, and, um, and um, we don't sense life there. We can come to a place of, of tolerating the church. We just put up with it. You know, if we're carnal, we might, uh, we might just uh, not want to give and, and, and not be caring about supporting the church and, and its well-being and, and knowing what it's going. You know, maybe, maybe the status quo is important. We have relationships there, and we're, we're there just because, um, just because uh, leaving would be too much trouble, and it's, it's, it's easier for us to be there and to have these comfortable relationships, and we won't get kicked out of everything, and we'll still be considered okay and all that, 
and um, um, we we just we just tolerate the church. We don't really love it, but you know we, we're here, and it's easier to be here than somewhere else. Um, I think there's also a certain amount of tolerance for those who are spiritual. Um, they they recognize serious there are serious issues. Maybe they feel like they don't have any good options. Or maybe they even feel called of God to be there and to be a witness for truth. Um, either way, I, I would like to say that I believe that just tolerating the church is not a very safe place to be. Uh, especially if you have a family that's growing up and they're, they're coming to the age of accountability and, and, or maybe they're teenagers just tolerating a church can be, can be a, dangerous, a dangerous place to be. I'm not saying God doesn't ever call you into dangerous places. Sometimes that might be your calling to be called into a dangerous place for the sake of the gospel. But, um, but it's something that, that um, I think you need to give close attention to. Somewhere here in this whole scenario, I think we find that, that materialism begins to or has already outrun the love for God. If, you, um, if you're over in James uh, chapter 5, he, um, he says, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered. And uh, verse 5, you lived in pleasure in the earth and are wanton. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. I think verse 3 is what I'd really like you to notice. It says, um, the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as if it were fire. Um, isn't this what happens when we sit on our spiritual riches? Remember, who did Jesus die for? Do you know who that is? And when, when the gospel, when Jesus gives us the most powerful thing in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we look at it in a passive way and we don't, we don't feel the urge to share it, is that, is that not like riches that will eat our flesh as fire? Um, where the gospel then becomes the, 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 the weapon to shoot each other, rather than something to share with the world. And so we, we, have, we're, we have a passionate church. We have one in maintenance mode. We have a church that tolerates. Um, we have a church that, that, that gets in the acceptance mode where, where sin is accepted. And... Um, and this is, uh, it, it's, it's no longer based, it's just based on how we feel. You feel like you, you feel like you feel, and I feel like I feel, and it's all okay, and it really doesn't matter. 
And um, somewhere in here we get into, we get back to our passage here, verse 16 of 2 Peter 3. And also in his epistles, that is Paul's epistles, speaking in them of things, uh, of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. You see somewhere in here uh, as part of the decline is, is the twisting of scripture, of making it say something that it really doesn't say, of making it fit my God instead of God himself. Now, um, before I go any farther, I'd just like to, I'd like to just discuss um, something that I, I feel like I, I, I'm learning here in this, in this situation. It has to do with generational conflicts. You know, we can have two generations, and I'm not saying back-to-back, -back, but I mean one and three and four, um, that desire to follow God, and, and yet they come with two very different perspectives, and I'd like to analyze just for a moment why this might be. And um, remember I said that back in the early 1900s there was revival. And, and one of the things that happens, I think, out of revival comes, comes a certain level of, of um, culture, Culture, uh, cultural experiences or cultural decisions that are made. There are applications of scripture, uh, or at least they they're, were meant to be. Um, that was what they were, that was the goal of the people who, um, who made them. And, um, and, and so we have some of those cultural things that, that, that come along with us. You know, they're, they're applications or, or almost are, um, you know, there, there are things that the older generation looks at, and they were, they were foundational in that time. And um, I know Brother Richard Herr, he, he, um, we discussed the plain code a little bit. And he said, you know, he said, uh, he said I came to the Lord and he said, I, I, I'm, I'm going to try to say it the best as I can, um, what he told me. But he said, you know, I had to decide, am I going to, am I going to, to stand up for Jesus Christ? You know, and, and, and in his mind, this was, a, this was a, a, a place of decision, a place of, of saying, am I going to stand for Jesus or am I not? And... Um, So, so the older generation, as they look at some of the applications of Scripture that we have made, they see it, to them it is a, it is a, a part of the revival. And when those things disappear, revival it is, it is sort of like it's the last part of the revival. I'm holding on to these pieces. These are parts of the revival. These are important parts. They represent... They represent the fire that happened back then. They are representative of something. You get what I'm trying to say? Okay. 
Now, when you go a number of generations, we have young people who have not seen that fire. They may long for that fire. They may long for fire, and they say, where is it? Show me the fire. I want to see it. I want to know what it looks like. I want to be a part of it. And, and, and we tell them, I want you to do this and this and this. And they say, what does that got to do with it? You see, they're not, they haven't, they don't see those same things as being part of the revival as the older generation does. Some of us are in in-between generations. We can see this way and we can see this way. We can say, yeah, I see how you feel, I see how you feel. But some of you are a little closer to the, the older generation and some of you are closer to the younger, are in the younger generation. But I, I think if you, and I think one of the things we have to remember is that um, we need to try to understand each other and care about how each other feels. But I have a question for you though. Is it possible? You see, to, to some, these are symbols of revival. To others, they are the symbols of deadness. You understand how that is? Because the church has not stayed in its state of revival. And we're used to it. We think this is just how church is. But I'd like to submit to you, I don't think it is. I think God has something. I think we are at a crossroads, brothers and sisters, that we're going to find that if we do not have Holy Ghost revival in the next two years, we're going to see something else happen in our church that we don't want to see. Now, you're down here. You're a long ways off from the valley. Don't look the same down here, okay? I'm happy for you. But um, I asked the question, how can the life come back? And will the symbols of the past hold purpose for the future? I'm not going to answer that. I'm not sure it's mine to answer. I don't know. I would like to also ask another question that, that, that has come to me as I've studied and as I've listened to, uh, to um, Philip Martin's sermon in private session of conference. And that is, when a church is in the passionate mode, is it really truth that's sitting at the head of the table? Or is it something else? I would like to submit to you that whether it is or not, a focus on truth is not enough. Was the revival in the early 1900s based on a determination to obey scripture? Or was it something more? What is eternal life? Now, I'm, I'm going to ask you this for you to answer, okay? But 
I'm looking for an answer directly from Scripture. I'm going to start it for you. And this is eternal life. It's getting, getting close. Getting close. That they might know thee. Keep going. That's right. And thank you. This is eternal life, to know thee. Okay? I would like to tell you, I believe that knowing Jesus is a part of church life that has often been missed. You will never have a passionate church life if you do not know Jesus Christ. You see, the Protestant focus has been the primacy of the scriptures. Is that not true? What was the Anabaptist focus? Knowing and following Jesus. Isn't that true? This was pointed out to me that in all of the previous statement of faiths, God was in article number one. The Garden City Confession, of which ours just comes from, what is the first article? The Word of God. God is number two. Now, you can jump on that horse and ride it to who knows where, okay? I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that sometimes the things that we put down on paper are more effective. They, they reflect our way of thinking, and they build the foundation from where we go a whole lot farther than we think. That was not original with me either. It is important to be biblical. It's important to know what the Bible says. It's important to base what we do on scripture. But it must all point to Jesus. You see, everything we do needs to point to him. If we have applications that do not, do not point to him, if we have... It doesn't matter whether they're good or bad. It has to point to him. If it doesn't point to him, it doesn't accomplish. It takes us, we just go in circles. We don't go anywhere. Back to um, 2 Peter 3. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things, beware lest ye also being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But here it is, here it is. This is what I want you to get. But grow in grace. What is grace? It is God's favor that was given to you when you didn't deserve it. It's God's power. But grow in grace. And what else? And in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, in our, I'm sorry, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, it's about knowing him. That's where the power is.
brothers and sisters. It's about knowing him. You know, revival is when God shows us who he is. That's what happened to Isaiah. Isaiah was a man of God. He was a prophet. He had visions. But then you come to chapter 6, and, and he has a vision of God. You see, revival is about having a vision of God, about God showing you who he is. And when you see God in a new way, in a way that the Holy Spirit shows to you, you will become alive in ways, and I will become alive in ways that you and I are not now. It's what God wants for us. He wants us to become alive. He wants to dump the power down on our church. I have a sign on our dresser. It says, is anything too hard for the Lord? And sometimes we can look at situations and say, nothing will ever change. But God reminds me again and again, there's nothing too hard for him. You cannot make up this thing of knowing God, but you can seek God. And he promises you shall seek for me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. And I'd like to encourage you, do not seek the experience. Seek God. Don't seek the experience. Seek God. You see, God brought what Isaiah needed to him in the way of experience when he needed it for the calling God gave him to do. Your experiences, my experiences are going to be different with God. But seek God. When you seek God, he says, you will, be, he will, you will find him. You will find him. I'm calling you today to rise and to fight. Not with the weapons of the flesh, which are the ones that come natural to us, but with the sword of the spirit and with prayer. Revival has never come without intense prayer. I don't think so. I don't think it's ever come without intense prayer. And the more of us that band together and pray, the greater the chance that God will come and, and do what has to happen in your life and in mine. So I call you today, and I didn't know the Sunday school lesson was on prayer when I, I did this one. Uh, didn't find out till later. I think God's trying to tell us something, brothers. We need to pray. We really need to pray. I'm sorry I kept you over time. Let's have a song. <laughs>